good vibes. A good evening. I do not attempt to adjust your radio. There is nothing wrong. The Knutsons. have taken control as to bring you this special show. Who are the Knutsons? Only good vibes. Only good vibes is the plan. Only good vibes, good vibes. Okay, this is called the Knutson Effect. Hello, Graham. Ah, there you are. Hello. How's things? You all right? Very good, thank you. Yes. Can I just say, Graham, I've got some serious beard envy going on right now. I've been I've, a couple of months. I've been trying to grow this in isolation, just to. Uh, but all right. I'm feeling a bit. Oh, like, I, I I gave mine a trim uh, before the weekend. Yeah. yeah. John, don't mind us. We're just uh, having having some beard. Before, oh, I'm I'm trying to get in this action too. I'm just gonna <laughs> wait to the party. I think before before lockdown, I would go to the barber every month. But since lockdown, I've been doing it myself, and it's actually got shorter. Yeah. So my barber's really pissed off because he's losing out. <laughs> he's losing money. <laughs> Get the hedge trimmers out. <laughs> how, um, how have you been on during lockdown, Graham? Um, well, I've been very busy, but of course, there's no, no income whatsoever because mm. I get paid. I've got limited company and I pay myself in dividends. So mm. therefore, as far as the government is concerned, that means I don't get any help. I do have a part-time uh, senior lecturer's salary, but that's not very much. But luckily, mm. that pays the mortgage every yep, month. Yep. My wife works full-time, so I mean, I've been lucky. The past five years, I've been so I've been so busy that you know I've got I've got money put aside, but that's supposed oh. to be for the future, not for now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I had I had three gigs at the weekend, and I had one gig last weekend. Oh, slowly i think we'll be back i do think we'll be back to clubbing a lot sooner than people think okay um hopefully with social distancing and face masks i do i do think that because i have been talking to um various shadow cabinet mps mm-hmm. and they're giving they're giving me little snippets of information so nice well you are the man in the know graham you are the man in the know well, you know, because the, for the first six weeks of lockdown, I was live streaming at least three times a week. Yeah. And then I realized that although it's great for your profile, yeah. it's absolutely rubbish for your bank balance because you don't get any money out of it. <laughs> That's true. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to stop doing it. And, I, and I, the last one I did was my 12-hour stream with United We Stream. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, how would you top that? So I thought, I'll have a break from it. I mean, I've done a couple since, but I I had a break. And then I spent my time campaigning on two fronts. One front is with Forgotten Limited and Excluded UK about people like me who aren't getting any help financially. And also with the Nighttime Industry Association um, campaigning about trying to get night uh, the nighttime economy back to some kind of normality. It's annoying that you, you see British Airways and Weatherspoons, for example, getting massive um, bailouts, then yeah. making people redundant. But the, the nighttime economy is worth over £100 billion to the UK economy. Yeah. And I think because the, generally people who work in the nighttime economy, generally speaking, have never supported the Tory party. Yep. which suggests that might be one of the reasons why they're not really that bothered about helping us. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. Because we, me and John seen a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel about a month or so ago. We were finally getting some bookings in again, more background music. And then all of a sudden, 
that got taken away from us. We got one gig, and now you can't even have the TV on in the, in the pub. Basically. I know, I know. I, I've had, I have, had, I've already had two, ca- two cancelled. They were, they were in the diary, ready to go, and then they got cancelled because the council, the local council, decided that they changed their mind. One was a festival, right, um, and one was a, a, an outdoor event in Manchester. And then last minute, the council changed their mind, and that's no way to, to kind of prepare and run things so kind of hope, just hoping but, for the best book it and hope and hope for the best that might actually go ahead then pull the plug just before exactly. that yeah exactly exactly where is it you've had your gigs recently you said you've had three gigs recently. well on the 22nd of august i played at a place called hardwick hall in the northeast that's kind of between darlington and durham mm-hmm. it was me norman jay and heather small oh, and there was um 800 people um who were at a hundred tables of eight people, right? All, all kind of sectioned off with table service, and if you left your area, you had to put a mask on. Wow. And towards the end, there was a massive, like, ten meter gap between the tables and the stage. And the last kind of half an hour, people were allowed to go down the front as long as they had masks on and, and kept their distance. That was really good, and right. everyone followed the rules as well. Nice. Last Saturday, I was in Sheffield. At this outdoor uh, event um, and people had to book tables and again it was table service and stay at their tables and that that again everyone followed the rules that was good people just stood up and danced at their tables basically <laughs> on Sunday I did an indoor test event in Carlisle yeah all right which went which went really well people had to stay in their ta- at their tables and then yesterday there was a, a a vintage fair um, near Preston at this country, this big mansion. Right. This is historic uh, site with a massive lawn. So there was like um, stalls, like a market, vintage market with stalls and food and everything and loads of deck chairs. And, and you had to stick to your group of deck chairs. Right. But if you wanted to go and get food or drink or go and buy stuff, you had to put a mask on and socially distance. And they all went really, really well. And it just shows you that if the government would just talk to people who are involved in putting on events, whether they're indoors or outdoors, then solutions can be found, I think. Definitely. I think it's quite fitting that you're wearing the Save the Sub Club t-shirt as well. well. It it was (laughs) a conscious thing. Normally, I wear one of my own t-shirts, but I thought, well, considering that you are in Glasgow, (laughs) and I thought, I'll put this on. We like that. We like that touch. I think yeah, they're doing phenomenal how well that campaign went. Actually, they went away yeah, yeah. in such a short period of time. Just shows the level of support they've got. No, absolutely. I think by about four hours after they launched, they reached their target, and then eight yeah. hours later, they almost doubled the target. And it just shows you how much love there is for that club because it is. It's. A, I think it's a unique club, and the fact mm. it's been been around for so many years. Um, it's, an, it's, it's it's probably one of the, the greatest venues in the UK, absolutely. Yep. I think it was a big shock when the Archies went under and a lot of people didn't expect it. So I think people are stepping up saying, this ain't happening again. You aren't, you aren't taking the, the subby this no, time. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, maybe we should go back to happier times then, Graham. <laughs> back to the, the happier days of the, the early rave scene. How, how did you get into it? What inspired you to, to get into the, the DJing, into the, into the rave the rave scene or at the beginning, basically? Well, up until 1984, I played in bands and I had absolutely no desire to be a DJ whatsoever. Right. Not, I, ne- I never wanted to be a DJ. Um, and 
some of the bands I, I was in in the in Nottingham uh, were getting a lot of interest from record labels, and we supported some some big acts as well. Right. Um, I had a job at a record shop in Nottingham, an independent record shop called Slets Disc, and the owner of the record shop bought a nightclub and decided that because the owner's office was on the same floor that I worked on, the singles and second-hand uh, floor. And he loved the music I played in the shop because I would play, you know, all the new singles that came in. Yeah. But I'd also play a real selection of, like, classic stuff because of, I was in charge of the second-hand department. And he said, look, I bought this club and I want you to DJ. And I said, well, I'm not a DJ. He goes, no, but I, I like the music you play in the shop. Yeah, yeah. So I said, well, I'll give it a go. And within a month of, of doing it, I thought, this is, I love this. This is fantastic. I just basically, what I did then is still what I do now. I basically played music that I liked. Yep. And people liked what I played. Mm-hmm. And, and even to this day, if someone comes up to me and, and asks for a record, doesn't matter how big that record is, if I don't like it, I just, I just can't play it. And I have to tell them politely, look, I know it's a massive tune and I know everyone else is playing it. Yeah. And I know it would go right off if I dropped it. <laughs> but I, I can't play it. I don't like it. And I haven't even got it. Got to stand your ground. Yeah, that's Well, you it. have to have stand your ground. Um, sometimes, though, I, I, in the past 10 years, I've started doing a lot of uh, private events. People, people who've got more money than sense, to be honest, um, book me for their 40th or their 50th. Yep. Or even second weddings. Sometimes it can be a bit tricky when the client who's paying me very well mm. sends through a list of tunes they want to play <laughs> oh, and, and up will pop certain massive. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? But I always get away with not playing them because I make sure that I, you know, when it's a private booking, I do sometimes play things I wouldn't play in a club. Yeah. But I still have to like them. So I have played, for example, there are certain pop records that I've played at private parties, but I do still like them. But I just yeah. you wouldn't catch me playing them in a club. Um, so so basically, so, so I, I ended up giving up playing uh, saxophone and singing in a band to Wait. concentrate on DJing. And then I met Mike Pickering uh, at an ID magazine photo shoot in London in 1987. And of course, I was aware of Mike because of his work with Quando Quango and uh, T Coy, and he was aware of me because I had a record label called Submission, and I know that, and I knew that he was playing our records at the Hacienda, and we hit it off, and we we kind of exchanged phone numbers because you know in those days you had, you had to physically dial someone's house and hope they were in, yep. and he asked me to to cover for him at Hacienda when he went on holiday in '88, uh, and I did and ended up staying wow. and you know we were both very lucky that we were in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. this amazing music was coming out of north america yep. ecstasy had appeared yep and the fact that the hacienda was this huge space uh, that welcomed everyone it mm-hmm. didn't matter if you were you know what 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 your ethnicity was or what your sexual preference was or what your social background was it yeah. didn't matter and of course in those days um a lot of clubs kind of were for specific groups of people and you didn't have to dress up to get in 
Yeah. <laughs> and everything just came together. And the fact that the Hacienda was owned by Factory Records and it had that uh, New Order connection and yeah. Tony Wilson in the background. Yep. And that's it just exploded from there. It just did. And 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 then uh, one of my earliest memories of that 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 period was uh, there's a club in Aberdeen uh, called uh, Fever. Right. And uh, Mike Grieve, who now owns a sub club, um, sent a fax to the Hacienda um, from from Aberdeen saying he wanted to um, book me to play at Fever. Mm-hmm. On a Sunday. Now, of course, in those days, I worked Wednesday nights in Sheffield, Thursday nights in Leicester, Friday nights at Hacienda, Saturday nights in uh, Nottingham. Right. And so, and, and I was always very loyal to those nights. Not like nowadays when you just play all over the place. Weddings, but, second weddings and stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These were these were uh, my my weekly residencies, and in the late eighties. Um, if people wanted to book me, they had to do it on a Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday, and and people did actually do that. Yeah. So I got this fax: Will you come and play at this sub club? Sorry, at the feet at Fever in Aberdeen. I was like, I'd love to. And so we agreed. I phoned them up. We agreed a price plus a flight plus a hotel. I remember flying up to uh, Aberdeen from um, from Manchester, and Mike met me off the plane. And as we're walking out the terminal to his car he said can I can I just say uh, Graham you sound Scottish I went I am he said well that's that's great because <laughs> everyone's assumed that you're from Manchester I went, no I'm actually from Aberdeen and he's yeah. like oh, you are kidding people <laughs> when they find out that you're one of them <laughs> you know? and, and I said well what they're going to do when I take my jacket off and I unbuttoned my denim jacket to reveal the red shirt of Aberdeen. And he's like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. So I got to the club and uh, they introduced me and they said, and he's, you won't believe he's one of us, he's from Aberdeen and took my jacket off and the place went mental. And I ended up playing there every month for the next three or, three or four years. And which was great because although I was born in Aberdeen, I left when I was very young. Right. But moved to Fife, and I did spend every summer as a child. I used to spend every summer in Aberdeen. I used to go and stay with my grandparents, but I never really had any um, friends. All my all my friends are from Fife, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then suddenly, nineteen eighty eight, um, I started to make friends in Aberdeen. You know, which was which was great. And even to this day, I still, um, I still although not for a while I still play in Aberdeen once or twice a year and, and hang out with everyone I used to yeah. um, hang out with uh, in Aberdeen and when I can go to Petodri which is very important to me <laughs> right to the holy place <laughs> mm. so was it the music that drew you down to England then was it Graham was it the band being in the band or did no my my um, um, well, I was uh, about to do my hires at Kirkcaldy High School right um, which, by the way, uh, other alumni of Kirkcaldy High School include Gordon Brown right. <laughs> and uh, Val McDermott. Okay. So, you know, there's some good good uh, p- former pupils from Kirkcaldy High School. So I was, I was about to do my hires because I wanted to go to Napier College in Edinburgh and mm-hmm. study uh, journalism. That's what I wanted to do. Right. And my dad came home one day and said, uh, I've got a job 
um, we're moving to the East Midlands. And I'm like, no, I've got to do my hires. And I was, and I was adamant, I really wanted to do my hires. I didn't want to just change education system and start yeah. to do A-levels, which were diff- slightly different. Yeah. So my, my whole family moved to the East Midlands and I stayed in Kirkcaldy and finished sixth year. And then that summer, mm-hmm. um, um, I went down to stay uh, with my family and I'd, I'd never been to England. I was like, what? 18, 17, 18. I'd never been to England. Well, apart from apparently I went to a wedding in Newcastle when I was seven. But um, I don't remember that. But um, And I thought, it's, it's actually pretty good down here. Because my dad... <laughs> well, my, my, my dad... Some pubs down there. <laughs> well, no, my dad worked for Next. And he was the area manager for the whole Midlands. Right. So I was like, so dad, what, what, what are you doing tomorrow? He said, well, I'm getting up at five. And I'm going to... Uh, Nottingham, uh, Leicester, Birmingham, Wolverhampton, and Dudley, and then I'm coming home. And I'm like, well, can I come with you? It's like, if you like, you have to get up at five o'clock. So I'd get up and, you know, get up at five, jump in the car with my dad, and then he'd go to the shop and say, right, I'll be back here in an hour and a half. And I would go and visit record shops in all these um, cities in the Midlands. That's clever. And, that's clever. <laughs> but the thing is, when when you're like growing up in Kirkcaldy, well, I used to go to Edinburgh a lot, and yeah. I did, and I did work in a record shop when I was at school, Bruce's Record Shop. Which um, look look up look up Bruce's Record Shop, Bruce and you'll see that they they were all over Scotland. And so I'd go to Edinburgh a lot, occasionally Dundee, yep. very occasionally Glasgow, and yes. obviously I, I I knew Aberdeen a lot. But suddenly, when you're in the Midlands of England all these big cities are yeah. very close together and they've all got their own identities and they're all very different and then of course then I start to go and see bands playing in all these cities and this was the um, very early 80s so you go and see bands like the Specials or uh, American bands like the Go-Go's or uh, Madness or Squeeze or all, all that, that that thing and I thought this is fantastic down here <laughs> so I and I ended up staying, and then after about a year and a half, my dad came home and said, great news, everyone. I've got a new job. We're moving back to Scotland. <laughs> and I'm like, Go. no, I'm no. staying. And, I, and so I moved to Nottingham. All right. Got a job in a record shop mm-hmm. and, um, you know, played in bands and stuff, and then became a DJ. And mm. the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> Definitely. Mm. There's a lot of people that watch are watching on now or they view what we do. I'm sure possibly haven't even heard of the Hacienda and, and how important it was. Maybe could, is there anybody to sum that up, how important that actually was to the British rave culture? Graham? Well, um, it was very important because it started off as a grand idea by Tony Wilson, Rob yep. Gretton, both of whom aren't with us anymore. Rob Gretton was the manager of Joy Division later New Order. Um, and factory records, and it was to create a, a space for, for an alternative kind of space for people to come and enjoy great music because clubs then were just like played chart stuff and you had to dress up to get in. Yep. And for, for, for bands to come and play at a new venue. So even though I lived in Nottingham, I used to get the train up to Manchester to go and see a lot of Scottish bands at Hacienda, like Orange Juice, Aztec Camera, Joseph K, 
Hipsway, that's a really obscure one. Um, and Lloyd Cole, the promotions, the associates, and in general, uh, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was a great venue, but mm. club nights never really were a big thing there. Yeah. And then in uh, I think it was 1986, Mike Pickering started doing Friday nude night, and uh, he was playing pretty much what I was playing in Nottingham, which was a real mix of you know soul, funk, disco new wave pop uh, just a real mishmash but then like me he noticed in 1986 a lot of these obscure 12 inches appeared from Chicago Detroit and New York yeah, which yeah. which ultimately became house music yeah. and then it start, house music started to take over but then this little magic pill called ecstasy came along yeah MDMA and just the combination of the music the ecstasy and, and the hacienda itself because of the kudos it had with the factory records connection yeah and everything just exploded now there is this alternative story that a group of djs from the southeast of england went to ibiza and discovered house music i'm not saying they they didn't but they that was that was well after the house music was massive in the east midlands the west midlands the northwest yeah and you know, even like today, there are people who were born after the Hacienda closed. I mean, the, the, the physical venue closed in 97. Right. But the but the club still exists. We, we, we've had a very successful uh, few years doing Hacienda Classical. We still do Hacienda Club Nights. In fact, next April, Easter weekend, we're doing a massive Hacienda night at Tobacco Dock in London, where we're resurrecting the nude night that me and Mike did on a Friday, the yep. hot night that Mike and John De Silva did on a Wednesday, and the flesh night, uh, which was then called the gay night, but of course now it's the LBGTQ night, right. which was on a Thursday. And we're doing these three massive nights together in London next April. And people are going crazy for it, but not just people who are over 45 who used to go to the nights. There's a whole new generation of clubbers who were born this century mm. who get really excited about it but that that makes total sense to me because when i was younger and and you discover new music you want to know how that exists so you look back and follow the thread back to find out because like early house music is just very cheaply made disco music yeah, so if yeah. you want to know if you want to know how it was made or why it was made you end up going back and discovering philadelphia international all-stars at the Soul orchestra yeah, yeah. So it totally makes sense to me that kids who were brought up on, uh, well, EDM, yeah. that really bland commercial EDM, are going to think, well, this is really good. Where does it come from? And where does that take you? It takes you right back to like Acid House, yep. Detroit Techno. And then if, you, then if you're looking, you know, the, the internet leads to then discover that this club called the Hacienda in Manchester was where the kind of, the UK rave scene, for want of a better word, one yeah. of the one of the birthplaces of it, yeah. and the fact that I suppose if people then find out that some of the DJs who played there are still working and are still doing it, yeah. then obviously you, you're going to want to go and see them, aren't they? Yeah. Because if you if you'd said to me when I started out DJing in 1984, you'll be doing this next century, yeah, <laughs> and you'll be doing and you'll be doing it when you're in your fifties, yeah. My response would have been, don't be so stupid. Yeah. But yet, I am. And, and and sometimes I still can't. 
I still can't be- believe that I am. You know, I mean, at the weekend, the three gigs I did weren't massive gigs. Yep. But I got so nervous, especially the weekend before doing my first gig in five months. Yep. I got the train. I was going to drive, but I was just got, felt so anxious about it. Right. I, I, I changed my mind to, to get the train instead. Yeah, yeah. And I got the train up, and I got there, and the atmosphere of it all, and the the, the anticipation from the crowd, and just walking through the crowd to get to the stage, and everyone's getting excited. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I'm so glad I'm still able to do still living the dream. What I, what I love, you know. Yeah, it might be difficult times, but I think it puts into perspective when you can get that first gig back out again, isn't it? And you realise what it actually means to you to still be doing it this long? No, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, um, when the first few weeks of lockdown, doing all the live streaming was great because you just kept doing what you were doing. But what was missing was was the audience and, and the atmosphere. Yeah. And, and okay, you'd get instant feedback if you're doing Facebook Live and you could type an answer, but that was great. Yep. But it's not the same as seeing people with their hands in the air or, yeah. um, you know, just sharing a smile with someone or seeing someone you recognize you know yeah, yeah. so um, how did you find it now graham with the the gigs you've been to with the social distancing in place and stuff is a has it made a big impact on the the atmosphere there are you still kind of getting no, no, no. connection with the crowd you know you still connect i mean at hardwick hall it was difficult because i was on a stage that was 10 meters back from the audience um but but you could still feel to kind of feel the love and, and there's a yeah. good vibe going but and, and although it was quieter than normal on stage i had my monitors on really loud yeah. so i was quite happy in sheffield um the place that is in sheffield it's a, it's a massive yard that's got lots of uh uh steel shipping containers that have been converted into oh. bars restaurants independent uh retailers right. and it's on two levels mm-hmm. and i was djing on the upstairs level where they had a big area with tables and an inside area with tables. And I was DJing where the inside met the outside. Uh So I was surrounded by people and people were coming up going, doing fist bumps and elbow touches and kind of have a selfie. And you were really close to them. Mm -hmm. And the atmosphere there was incredible. In Carlisle, because it was indoors, there was less people than normal, but everyone was kind of dancing around their tables. And then yesterday at the... um, the outdoor thing in Preston. Um, when I finished, I had to go to the toilet. I had to walk through all the deck chairs. So everyone was just jumping up and doing the old quick selfie and elbow touching and fist bumping. Right. So you still get that atmosphere. You still get that vibe. The only difference is people aren't crammed together yeah. down the front going mental. On the yeah, plus yeah. side, though, it means you haven't got a sea of Faces just looking at you as if you're going to about <laughs> expect you to do something. People are all in their little groups dancing and yeah, not really yeah. paying attention to the stage, which is how it should be. So, well, in, yeah. in many respects, it's a bit like what it was yeah. pre-smartphone days. Okay. Um, and the other thing as well, nobody's allowed anywhere near the DJ box. Yep. And that's, that's great as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> no request. <laughs> you know, it's not just requests. It's just like you don't get people start talking to you when you've clearly yeah you, you got you got your headphone on your ear and you're doing stuff it's pretty obvious to me he must be doing something <laughs> or people coming and talking to you on the ear that you've got the headphone over and yeah. you're going like one minute one minute yeah. just a minute <laughs> i'm trying to mix no all i want to say is 
I used to come and see you at the Hacienda. I just think you're funny. <laughs> great. Thank you. Uh, so none of that. No. <laughs> oh, but I mean, it, it'll return, and that's, that's fine. That's quite a positive. I'm not. I'm not knocking. I'm not knocking people do that because without people showing, um, you know, coming along to to, mm-hmm. to to do that and see me, then I wouldn't have a. I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Yeah. But sometimes you think, oh my god, can you not see that? I'm yep. busy. And it's not just me. I see other people doing it to other DJs, you know. Yeah. Or if I'm at the side of a stage in normal times and someone goes, I just want to have a quick word with uh, Mike. He's, well, he's, he's DJing. Huh. No, no, no. I just want a quick word. Well, <laughs> wait until he takes his headphones off. <laughs> and, then, and then they go, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's... We, me and John started these chats at the start of lockdown, so at the start it was uncertain, then it, a few months later guests hit a point where it was quite getting quite doom and gloom for a while, but I think this has been the most positive one yet, John, to be fair, I think there's a lot of, a lot of positivity in this really, it's good to hear. I don't think, I've, I'm not negative by nature, because um, in 2008 when we had the big financial crash, mm-hmm. um, that was completely unexpected and out of the blue. Yep. And that was 12 years ago. So I was in my early 40s. And it was around, I mean, up until 2008, basically everything I ever earned, kind of I spent. And so when 2008 came, I just was not prepared. Like a lot of people weren't prepared for the fact that clubs closed, promoters yep. went out of business, mm-hmm. and uh, venues, some festivals went under, and promoters started saying, I still want to book you, but I can't pay you what, I'm usually paying you and it was really tough yeah. and then the past five years have been so amazing I thought right in case 2008 happens again <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna cut my cloth I mean actually since 2008 moved house from a fucking massive house that was hemorrhaging money every month yeah to, my house is still a big house but it's about half the size of my previous house yeah. and we don't hemorrhage money uh, I've also got teenage boys. They cost a lot of money. So I've, been, I've kind of steadied the ship and learned a lot from 2008. Right. Worked harder. Also given up given up drinking it was a big uh, help as well because Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays just ceased to exist. Yeah. But now I can have busy weekends and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday I'm doing other stuff because I'm also like a part-time uh, senior lecturer as well. So... When when the lockdown came, it was like, Jesus Christ, this is not what anyone was expecting. Yeah. And it went on longer and longer and longer. But I'm prepared for it. I've got yeah. money. Um, like I say, money is supposed to be for the future, but luckily it's there. But I don't think anyone expected it to go on for so long. Yeah, yeah. From, the, from the minute lockdown began, I've always taken a positive view because I know a lot of DJs, uh, similar age to me, who are in real trouble because they're yep. not they, they weren't prepared for it mm-hmm. they just their their whole career has been about money comes in money goes out mm-hmm. and yep. you know it's it's quite tight yeah, uh, yeah. margins and also as well in 2008 I refused to do ridiculous deals with promoters who were trying to get ridiculous deals I said no I'm, I'll I, I can negotiate a new fee but there's yeah, no yeah. way I'm doing it for that much yeah. and, and and I think a lot of DJs who did that, I've never got managed to recover and get back up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I've been positive the whole way through and keep myself busy with with my students online, yep. uh, with the live streaming, with the campaigning, and just getting on with life. Because I, I, I do not believe this is going to be 
forever. Well, it's not going to be forever, but I do believe by the spring, things yeah. will be a lot more like they used to be. Yeah, it's yeah. Quite positive. You've got that event coming up in April as well um, in, in London. Did you say that was? That's right. It's um, Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's April the 24th, I think. It's me, Mike Pickering, and Masters at Work in the, nude, in the nude arena. It's John De Silva, Kevin Saunderson, Juan Atkins, and Derek May, otherwise yep. known as the, the Belleville Three, in the hot room. Yep. And in the flesh room, uh, DJ Paulette with a special guest to be announced. I can't tell you who it is. Brilliant. Well, that's promising. Promising times are all. Yeah, but you, I don't think I don't think you can sit around and wait. Yeah, and hope yeah. For the best. I yeah. think you have to go right next April. Let's. Um, it, it's fairly likely yeah. that we'll be able to do this. So let's go ahead and, and plan it. You know, we've already had to postpone all eight of this year's mm-hmm. Hacienda Classical shows. Yeah, yeah. And that's and 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 the, the worst thing about that is. There's over a hundred people involved in that show. It's not just the seventy people on stage. There's another thirty people who do the sound and the lights mm. and the stage, and they're all not—they're all out of work, basically. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm—I'm I'm lucky that I've got my small part-time lecture salary. I'm lucky that my wife works full time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but rather than sit around being miserable mm-hmm. and moaning about it. I yep. thought, right, it is what it is. I've got to do something and yeah, so keep you, busy. Yeah, and that, you just use the time productively, yeah, to actually... I have been using the time productively. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, there are, there's, a, there's a new project that I can't tell you about until it's signed, signed off, but there's an exciting oh, new yes. project. Such a tease, John. I know. We bring you on here for the program. I can't... When it's signed off, we'll be. I'll be telling everyone about it, but it's a music-based project that's... Um, but uh, because it, but, but this project when it's announced, people will go, "How come he's never done that before?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I tell you why. Because in lockdown, um, I'm a very keen uh, mountain biker. I have been all my life. Right. But since lockdown, instead of going out two or three times a week, I'm going out religiously without fail at five a.m. every other morning. Right. religiously even if it's yeah. raining yeah. and so and I, and I do a minimum of like 50 kilometers right and that's about two and a half hours or if i can i'll do three hours which is like 70 75 kilometers and i don't listen to music mm-hmm. because it, I, you need to be aware of your surroundings yeah. and when i'm off road and going through woods and forests and downhills this is where i get all my ideas and creativity yeah, yeah, from yeah yeah <laughs> and um it was just like thinking about these things and I suddenly thought, hang on a minute. I've suddenly realized what I should have, well, not just me, what me and the Hacienda should have done many years ago. Right. And <laughs> I've set the wheels and, and, and luckily oh, Peter. He's giving us hints now, Paul. He's giving us hints. Can you guess <laughs> yeah, what is, yeah? You better watch, so, but you're going to slip off in a minute. <laughs> but luckily everyone involved in Hacienda was like, oh my God, this is a great idea. So oh, yeah. I've got the, the authority yeah. to go ahead and make it happen yeah and you, you'll find I guess, out soon i guess that's one of the positives from this whole situation is it has given people time to kind of plan things out and maybe you know come up with different directions and things that they hadn't really thought of before and things they can now pursue no absolutely yeah absolutely i've been getting guys think, like myself on graham guys like myself on here to chat to us me and john would never have thought had the time if sat and created something like this no, exactly no we're learning um, history every day <laughs> 
No, I, I think it's great. I've done a few um, interviews online with people, and um, and they've all been a lot younger than me as well, which is which is um, interesting. And um, you're right. If it wasn't for lockdown, we wouldn't yep. be sat here mm-hmm. uh, chatting now. But what one thing I've discovered as I've got older, and one thing that I tell my students is your biggest enemy to creativity is procrastination. Mm-hmm. So you have great ideas and you keep talking about these great ideas and telling everyone about these great ideas. But that, the hardest thing is to actually sit down and do them. Yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and I'm guilty of a lot of that myself over the years. But yeah. on Christmas Day 2016, when the news came through that George Michael had died, yep. that totally freaked me out because George Michael and I were born in the same year. We are born in the same month, 1963. Right. He was born in the end of July. I was born at the beginning of August. I discovered that when I was 19, when I bought Wham Rap. Yeah. <laughs> That's a classic. This is what I want to do. How come George Michael's the same age as me is doing what I want to do? Because that's when yeah. I'm still playing in bands. Yeah, yeah. And so I've always I've already always followed his career very closely because we're the same age. Yeah, yeah. The highs, the lows, the great tunes, the not so great tunes. And then in 2016, when Hacienda Classical went from being a one-off show to a tour, and that led to being on the road most weekends throughout the year, I also did every Wednesday night in Ibiza from the end of May to the beginning of September. Yep. And with the classical show, it meant lots of after parties and it meant lots of extra gigs. Yeah. And I was just like going crazy that whole year. Yeah. And my wife was starting to get worried <laughs> because I was just like fucking drinking and yeah, every, every, everything else that goes along with it. And by the eight, by December, I was completely exhausted. Yeah. And I'd start, I'd the idea, I think, oh, maybe it's time to clean up my act. And then George Michael's death was, that was it, the catalyst. I thought, right, he's gone. Admittedly, he probably had a lot more health issues than I had. Yeah. And probably came there a lot more than I ever did. <laughs> and so I, I just stopped, yeah, which yeah. was tough because my first gigs, I, I then had four gigs between Christmas and New Year, but they were all less than two hours from home. So I just drove there and back. That's, that's, that's fine. You're not going to drink when you're driving. Yeah, yeah. But then the whole of January off, mm-hmm. but then my next two gigs at the end of January 2017 were Elgin and <laughs> Bathgate. Yes, I drive. That's why you can't even drive that. <laughs> well, it wasn't so much. Well, I, I got the train, just trains and planes. But yep. the, the thing is, Elgin, the first uh, weekend at the end of January in 2017, they were going bloody hell for leather. It was chaos. <laughs> and I'm like, no, just oh. get me some more iron brew, you know. <laughs> and then the next night in Bathgate, oh, my God, they were just. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I know I you, I know I you you usually give me a bottle of vodka and a bucket of ice. I'm going to just stick with the iron brew. Yeah. And then I thought if I can do those two gigs and survive, I think I'll be all right. Yeah. But then I discovered alcohol-free beer and alcohol-free beer is the greatest placebo there ever was because you feel like you're drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Getting something. People assume you're drinking yep. and you, and your brain, I believe that you're drinking. So you kind of get this little buzz. Yeah, the difference yeah. is at the end of the night, you go back to your hotel and go to sleep, or you or you get in your car and drive home, which yeah. is always funny because people think you're gonna you, you get in the car pissed, but you're not. You know, 
<laughs> I just thinking of you, but not actually drunk. <laughs> no, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Graham. I'm sure we could sit and chit chat about the history of uh, the the British scene that all night. I could, but I think. John well, listen, that, that's for us. I mean, of course, um, if you go to my website, this is grahampart.com, mm. you can keep up to date with everything I'm up to, and I also sometimes talk about the things that I have been up to mm. in the past. But it's been a pleasure talking to you. Good questions. Yeah, just no, thanks for really go, Graham. Can I just no. ask you just another, another wee thing or two, Steve? With um, Obviously, being involved with the Hacienda, absolutely legendary club. What, what was it like actually DJing there and being involved in that scene at the time? You know, it must have been incredible. It was, it was incredible. You, I, I, to start with, I had to still pinch myself most Fridays to think, I can't believe I am doing this. It's not just <laughs> the fact that I'm now part of the Hacienda Factory Records family. Mm-hmm. It's not the fact that I now am friends with New Order. It's not that I, you know, the fact that I was be chatting to ta- to Tony Wilson in the DJ booth. Yeah. That was hard to take in to start with. But then looking at the 2,000 people in front of you, completely going crazy for whatever you did. Yeah, yeah. And then after a while, I think it took about six to eight months, and then it was like, no, this is what I do. And I'm part of this, of a bigger picture. Yeah. And to me, it's always been about the music. And mm-hmm. so when that, in the early, in the early to mid nineties, when that so-called superstar DJ thing came along, I was never, never comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. To me, it's always been about the music, which is why I, I do find, I, I do, I do appreciate the support I get and the attention I get. But sometimes I wish when you're doing a, a gig and everyone's just like facing you and like, like that, yeah. I just think, turn around, face Dang. each other, <laughs> enjoy the music. Cause that's what it used to be like when yeah, I started yeah. out, you know? Yep. Okay. Definitely. No, I really appreciate that you take the time out, Graham. It's been, we, we've set up these kind of chats to not only learn more about the history for ourselves, but for the newer viewers. And because we, because we, with the new social media driven world, there's mm. it's like, everything's international at the click of a button. So you get all these people interested in learning. So we always try and support the new up and coming DJs and talent, and also we learning as we, every time we talk to somebody, aren't we, John? So it's so much more learning. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks dead. for taking time out, chatters. No, thank you very much. And I even managed to mention Aberdeen and Pottery. <laughs> That's really good. So there you go. <laughs> you sleep well tonight. <laughs> yeah. Right. So thanks a lot, guys. Thanks Take a lot, care, Graham. Graham.